True Grit, how many of you have seen it? So if you've seen the movie, you know, maybe you saw the older one with John Wayne uh, many years ago. You know the story. Maddie Ross is a 14-year-old little girl. Her dad has been murdered by one of her dad's hired hands, and he's escaped into the Choctaw Nation. She's a young lady on a mission, a mission in her case of vengeance. And there are forces laid out to resist her and to turn her back and to tell her, go back where you came from, go back home. And and you saw just a few examples of that in the film clip that I showed you. There's the guy who says, here's your train ticket, go back. There's the guy at the river who says, I'm taking you to the sheriff. There's the river itself, wild, raging, deep that would resist her efforts to progress forward and be in league with Rooster Cogburn, the man that she's chosen because she believes he can really help her on her mission. And that's the title of the movie, A Man Who Has True Grit. For us as believers, it really isn't any different. And before I read this selection from Hebrews chapter 10, the reason I chose that movie selection is that movie selection pictures for us perfectly what the author of the book of of Hebrews is telling a group of formerly Jewish, that's why they're called the Hebrews, formerly Jewish people who had converted and become Christians in the first century, living scattered in congregations throughout Asia Minor. The author of this book is basically presented with a situation of he's been pastoring these people and now in the midst of them becoming Christians and converting and moving forward on their path and on their journey, the Roman Empire has switched things up majorly on them and made Christianity an illicit religion. It's, It's no longer allowed in the Roman Empire. Judaism, on the other hand, is still a very legal religion in the Roman Empire. What it means is that Christians can have their possessions, every one of them, confiscated from them. If you become known to be a Christian, because it's now illegal, you can have your possessions, your home, your animals, your livelihood taken from you. We're not talking about um, higher tax rates here. We're talking about 100% is taken away from you. you. You can be arrested for practicing Christianity. You can have, as we know from the apostles, you can have your life taken from you. You can have your children and your spouse taken from you because this is now an illegal religion. What, what do you think that plants as a seed into the hearts and minds of these people who were once Jews, which is still a legal religion, and who have now become Christians? We better turn back. We better go back home. All these forces were now arrayed against them, just like the forces arrayed against Maddie Ross in that film clip saying, go back, go back, go back. 
Christianity is not for you. It was a big mistake for you to become a Christian in the first place. Why are you following this guy named Jesus? Go back to being a Jew. That's what you need to do. And the people of this century, first century Christians, had to basically make a decision, right? They had to decide whether they were going to make a U-turn, whether this was going to be too dangerous, too much trouble to keep progressing forward, or whether they were going to keep on going and press forward like little Matty Ross there. And in this passage, what we hear are really two things. Should we keep pressing forward? And how will we keep pressing forward? And that's what, that's what I want to read to you now. Now that you kind of understand the background, the situation of Hebrews chapter 10, 19 to 25, listen to what the author of this book says to these people. This is a, 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 someone who's been helping them, pastoring them, guiding them. And he says, therefore, brothers and sisters, we're family. He says, we're family. We're brothers and sisters. Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Now he's going to use language from Old Testament worship. The most holy place was the inner sanctum of the temple in Jerusalem. We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Will you do, do me a favor? Take your pen that you got. Underline that verse. This is the pivotal, this is the key verse in this text this morning. Verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And it goes on and it says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. This We Give series is going to really be about the vision that we have for ourselves as individual Christians. I should say the vision God has for us as individual Christians as we press forward into a new year. For us as a collection, a family, brothers and sisters in Christ as we move forward into 2013. And one of the things that we all have to recognize is there's always a little bit of a seed in our minds. It's almost natural to think about when we're moving forward on a path to think about, is this the right path? And should I keep moving forward on this path that I'm on? I love to hike. Arizona has amazing hikes. My favorite way to hike is to do a big loop trail. Uh, If you hike a loop trail in a day, it's usually going to be 10, 12, maybe 15 miles. But I've noticed something about myself on these trails as you're looping around about two-thirds of the way through, maybe three-quarters of the way through, I'll start to have little doubts play in my mind. Like, did I miss... Did I miss a path? Am I going to really circle back to the parking lot where I parked the car? Am I going to end up five miles down the road, you know, in the dark, trying to figure out my way? Uh, I have doubts like, well, did I spend too long at the waterfall taking pictures? Did, did Julie and I spend too long picnicking by the beautiful mountain stream? And now it's, we're going to get back after dark. And if it's one of those pay parking lots like in Oak Creek Canyon, are they going to have to shut the gate? Now I've got to walk down to, you know, you have all these things. Am I on the right path, right? It's natural for us in a way to question that. 
But there's something more that's going on here. This is not, in, in the book of Hebrews, this is not just that sort of natural tendency that we have to ask ourselves questions when we're, when we're on a path. These formerly Jewish, now Christian people had a spiritual issue. On top of their natural tendency to question, is Jesus the path? Is he really the way, the truth, and the life that I should be following? There was a spiritual issue of sin in their hearts and doubts and fears. And those doubts and fears were being fueled by what the Roman Empire had done by making Christianity an illegal religion. God promises us in the Bible that we're always going to have to face doubts and fears in our lives and also questions about, is the Savior really the way, the truth, and the life? Is Jesus Christ really the path? Will he lead us finally to the destination? And those questions that we're going to have and arise somewhat are natural, but even more so are spiritual. They're the temptations of Satan, the world, our own sinful flesh, causing us at times to question, do I keep on following Jesus? And that's why this is still such a hugely relevant piece of scripture for us today. Because what we're being encouraged here to do is to keep moving forward, even sometimes when life creates a lot of uncertainty and doubt, questions and fears as we walk with Christ. That's, that's what life in a fallen sinful world, when we're walking around in it with fallen sinful hearts, that sin, that fear will do. And the words that this author uses to address the Hebrews are the very words that we still need today. The encouragement to keep going forward. Not only in the uncertainty of our faith in Christ at times, but also in the uncertainty of a very brave new world that we're living in. I'll talk a little bit more about that. But notice, here's what I'm going to do today. I I told you verse 23 is the pivotal verse. Let us hold unswervingly. And I want you to, now I had you underline that whole verse. I want you to circle one word. Circle the word unswervingly. Let us hold unswervingly, no U-turns, to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. In other words, what this author is encouraging us is be like Matty Ross. All those forces arrayed to turn her back, not a one of them succeeded. Now, in a few minutes, we're going to talk about why. But first, what I want to do is go into the back part of this text in Hebrews. And I want to point out exactly what it says and why, why we must continue to move forward. Because that's exactly what God tells us. Look at verse 24. Let us consider how we may spur one another on. When you spur a horse, where does it go? It goes forward. And here's what I want you to, to write in your first blank. Move forward. And in these last verses, what the author is telling the Hebrews, these Old Testament believers who've now become New Testament believers, he's telling them, move forward because we have a much better way, a new and better way to be the church. And he's going to talk about what this new and better way to be the church is and how important it is. You heard me describe the situation of the first 
the first century believers and how challenging their world was. And I want you to know, as you listen to these world, these encouragements and words about how we are to be the church today, you should not look back and go, oh, wow, that was such a horrible world. They, they could have their property taken away if they were believers. Uh, they, they, could, they were so persecuted. Their lives were threatened. It, it must have been horrible for them. I want you to understand that Satan is no less interested in turning you back today than he was in turning them back. 2,000 years ago. And the pressures, the temptations to fear, they may be slightly different in form, but they are no different in power. The other day I was uh, listening to a program, very famous psychologist was talking about his long-term history practicing psychology, trying to help people in the world. And, and he, he said, you know, here's what I've discovered in the last few years. I no longer live in my father's world. Like when, when my dad grew up, you know, people were learning values. They were taught things and how to behave, to be honest, uh, hardworking, people of integrity. He said, I don't even really live in the world that I grew up in as a child. And he said, furthermore, as I counsel young people, 20 or 25 years old, I discover that they don't even live as young people. If you're, if you're young in here today, you don't live in the world that's here today. And he said, here, I want to point out one thing that I've noticed. I've noticed that in the world that we live in today, the, the frequency of a, of a kind of person, what he, he's, he's called them baiters, has, um, has just increased exponentially in his practice as a psychologist. And baiters is an acronym. It stands for this. Baiters are backstabbers, abusers, imposters, takers, exploiters, and reckless people. He says a lot of people, they're, they're maybe living cocooned, but in my practice, I get to see the real world. The quantity of baiters has risen exponentially in the last 10, 15 years. And we are surrounded by these backstabbers, abusers, imposters, takers, exploiters, and reckless people. He said, I see it so often I've discovered some of their characteristics. This is the world that we're living in. And this is the world that is going to push back and, and try to pressure us out of things like following Jesus, right? Bader's characteristics, arrogant entitlement, lack of empathy, no remorse or guilt. They're irresponsible and self-destructive. They thrive on drama. They brag about outsmarting. They only engage in short-term relationships, no long-term relationships. And they live in a fantasy world. They're delusional. This is one very well-known psychologist's experience of how this path that we're on in our culture and our world today is becoming less and less and less familiar but here's what we know. It would be so easy for us as followers of Christ and say, thank God that's not us. And how horribly wrong we would be to say that, much less think it. Because guess what? What this psychologist is noticing is no more than a thing called sin. 
And it's in all of us. It's in you. It's in me. It's the darkness of our soul that caused Adam and Eve originally to turn their back on God. They were baiters. And every generation of human being since then has had a baiter inside of them. That's all of us at different times. The only difference for us as followers of Christ is not that we're not baiters. It's that we have a merciful Savior who has cleansed us from the sins that rest in our hearts, come out of our mouths, and we act them out with our hands and feet. We have a merciful and loving God who sent his son to die on the cross for us, to bleed and die for us, who raised him from the tomb to show that we can have victory over these characteristics through the blood of Christ. And, and, and when we see that, when we see how much we've been given and how much this world around us and this very unfamiliar path that we're on needs this same Jesus that we've been given, we must be like Maddie Ross, people on a mission and undeterred and resolute to share this gospel of Jesus Christ, not just to take it for ourselves. Oh, thank you, Jesus, that you've cleansed me from my sin of being a baiter. That's not, it can't stay there. Because we've been loved so deeply and forgiven so much and granted and given so much, the organic and natural and loving result of that is to be, to say, well, we've got a whole city of baiters. Let's take Jesus to them too. And, and, and let them hear. And how are we going to do that? Well, we're going to do that by being the church. And we have a new and better way to be the church. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. As we move forward, where does the author of the book of Hebrews tell us to move? He tells us to move forward into love and good deeds. What kind of a church family are we to be? We're to be all about love and and good deeds. When we started this church eight years ago, we started it with a vision on the basis of Acts 2, 42 to 49. You can write that reference down and go home and read it. Acts 2, 42 to 49. This is a congregation in Jerusalem filled with the Holy Spirit, and they were filled with love and good deeds. They shared their possessions and goods with one another. They gathered around God's word daily. They prayed for one another. It was such an attractive force in Jerusalem. It says that God added to their number daily those who were being saved incredible place, right? And, and someone might say, well, that was the very first church, of course, right out after the day of Pentecost. But look at what the author to the book of Hebrews is saying. He wants the same kind of church here at Crosswalk today. Spur one another on. And, and let us consider, meaning we ought to give some thought to this. We ought to pay attention to this. It's not enough to say, well, uh Maybe, maybe not. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And then he goes on, he says another thing. Here's another uh, uh, piece of this snapshot of this new way to be the church, better way to be the church. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. He's really saying something challenging here. You know what it is? Get up close and personal with other Christians. And you're saying, what? 
get up close and personal with who? Like the arrogant who think that Jesus is the only way, truth, and life? The, the hypocritical? The people who come to church on Sunday and, and put a mask on and put a face on and act like they're all goody two-shoes, I'm supposed to get up and close and personal with them? Get up close and, and, and personal with people who say one thing but don't always follow through on their acts of love and kindness. I'm supposed to get up close and personal with other people like that? And the author of the book of Hebrews says, yes. Get up close and personal. You see, the Bible really paints a picture of a, of a, a true Christian church that is a congregation, not an aggregation. You know what the difference between a congregation and an aggregation is? An, an aggregation, I, I would picture that as like a bag of marbles. There's a lot of different, beautiful marbles, and they're all collected inside this pouch, inside this bag. And, and so they have the appearance of being together. And they're even close, but the reality is that they're just a bunch of beautiful things collected together. They're very hard, so all they really do is sort of slip and slide past one another, and they don't really make an impression or anything on each other. They're just sort of aggregated there. A church can be that. This church, if we're not careful, could be that. And at times in the past... Sometimes even at times in the present, we are that. And that's something that we can repent of. But that's not what a true congregation is. A congregation is not a bag of marbles. I would compare a congregation to a cluster of grapes. And see the difference? See, a cluster of grapes grapes is organically connected through the vine, isn't it? Through that stem. And, And each connection is deep into the grape. And grapes are not hard and slippery and just slide past each other. Grapes are, are clustered together. They're, they're like family and they're, they're soft toward each other. They do make an impression on one another, don't they? That's God's picture for a church. Like crosswalk, to be a cluster of grapes. Really what he's saying here when he says he wants us to get up close and personal, he's saying stop being marbles and start being a cluster of grapes for each other. Be soft and warm and make an impression on one another. And that word meet together, a lot of pastors use that to kind of say, you know what, you need to be in church all the time. You need to be going to worship. Make sure you're there every Sunday. But this word meet together really means something deeper than that. It means an experience that's much more like the the experience that you'll get here at Crosswalk if you join a growth group. It's talking about a deep, personal, having an impact on, on someone really getting to know one another. When it says, let us not give up meeting together, it's not so much talking about worship as it is growth groups. The kind of meeting together where you truly become family, get to know each other, stop being a marble and all hard and crusty. And, you know, let's, let's face it, on Sunday mornings, we're much more like a bag of marbles, slipping and sliding past each other here in the church and on the patio. You really want to become a cluster of grapes. 
You have to be in a growth group. You have to serve on a ministry team. You have to go through the class system. See, one of the things that we wanted to do at Crosswalk and part of our vision, not only of the past, but even more so as we move into the future, one of the reasons we called a discipleship pastor is, is because we want more people in this church to get rid of the hard crustiness of being a marble so that we don't have an aggregation. But we want more people to be clustered together like grapes. And that happens in, in very simple steps as the Holy Spirit works on our hearts and grows our faith. And that happens to our study of the Word of God. And that happens in things like the class system classes and growth groups and, yes, attending church. But we wanted to make it so identifiable and easy. How do I go from being a marble to being a grape? class system, growth groups, ministry teams. And so here's the very practical part of this, guys. If you're coming to Crosswalk and you're like, ah, he's talking about being in aggregation, that's exactly how this church feels. Well, part of the responsibility for that might be on us as leaders, but part of the responsibility for that is on you to stop being a marble and to start being a great. And to get involved and take the next steps. Take a look at your program. Want another very practical way to stop being a marble? If you, if you take a look at your program, inside, every Sunday, we have a little page here. Right here. Next steps. And you know what those next steps are? You, could, you can write this in on the program if you want. Next steps to stop being a marble and start being a great. That's what this is. This is for you to get to know other people at Crosswalk and to get to know your church and truly become brothers and sisters at a very deep level. So that you can spur one another on to love and good deeds. You can get up close and personal. Now flip the page. And in this very trying and testing Life in a fallen world, you can offer encouragement. And notice one another. You don't come to church just to be encouraged, just to be taught, just to be spurred on. You come to church to do it for one another. Yes, part of church is being encouraged, being taught, being spurred on. But another part of church is encouraging, teaching, And spurring others on toward love and good deeds. Encouraging one another because we live in tough times. The end day is approaching. And all the more as you see the day approaching. God wants us in this new and better way of being the church to give each other encouragement. So as we move into 2013, this is what we're about. This is it. We are determined to be the church that God wants us to be. A church where we are a cluster of grapes, not a bag of marbles. A church where we spur one another on toward love and good deeds. A church where we get up close and personal with one another. And a church where we're here for each other. Truly here, like true brothers and sisters, to help each other in a tough and fallen world, to give each other encouragement. And we all need that. Now I want to take you back to that movie clip. Clearly the author to the Hebrews here in this text is saying, don't turn around. 
You started with Jesus. You got to continue with Jesus. No U-turns. When Maddie Ross determined that she needed to continue her mission, how did she do it? How did that little 14-year-old, powerless teenage girl do it? It's all me. My wisdom, my power, my authority, that's how I'm doing it. My determination, that's how I'm going to do it. Is that how she did it? Do you remember the clip? Here's how she did it. The author of life is with me. I have a good God and a good horse. I love that line. I've got a good God and a good horse. And I will fear no evil, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, for you are with me. How did Maddie Ross do it? Think about the images. After that guy tells her, here's your train ticket, go home. What's the next image in that clip? Well, it's actually a sound. Even before you see the image, you hear the clip-clop of Maddie riding on the back of something much bigger and more powerful than she is. How does she avoid that guy at the river? Yeah, she takes the apple out and she beans him on the head and he lets go of the reins. But how does he not catch her again? Because she's riding something bigger and more powerful than she is. How does she get across that raging river? Way too deep for a 14-year-old girl to swim and survive going through. She holds on to something bigger and more powerful than she is. If we want to continue to move forward with Jesus in our faith, if we want to do exactly what it says here in verse 23, I call this the pivotal verse. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. If we want to hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, if we want to know beyond any shadow of a doubt that he who promised us is faithful, how do we move forward in this faith in Jesus Christ, the faith that we confessed in the Apostles' Creed, unswervingly, We do it by holding on to something that is bigger and more powerful than we are. We can't do it in our own strength. There is no way that we fall, not individually, and there are way too many individualists in our world today. I'll make it happen all on my own. I don't need anybody else. Guys, that is a huge mistake, and it goes beyond a mistake. It's a sin. To think that you are going to push yourself forward in your own power, might, strength, and wisdom in this world. We live in a fallen world and there are forces arrayed against us that want to not just defeat you, they want to destroy and decimate you. They want to pull you apart limb from limb. Especially spiritually. And they want to see you in hell for eternity. You are not going to beat those forces in your own power, strength, might, and wisdom. You need to hold on to something bigger and stronger than you. Maddie Ross held on to two things bigger and stronger than her. And we heard it, didn't we? She had a good horse. 
But that was not even her full confidence. I have the author of life on my side. Right? I have the author of life on my side. So hold on tight. We have a new and living way to be close to God. This is amazing, the picture. Now remember, we're going to go back to the first verses here. And what he's teaching is in language from Old Testament worship. Right? Now, here's a picture of Old Testament worship that hopefully we're Levinites so we can relate to this picture. And and it goes beautifully with the clip, right? I would compare Old Testament worship to being like the first lessons that you get when you're around uh, a very mature, maybe somewhat, you know, cranky horse. What's the first lesson? Don't ever get behind a horse, right? Why, Why don't you get behind a horse? Because... You get kicked. If you're a child, if you're a small child, that kick could kill you. Right? The power of the horse, the very first lesson about being around horses is respect the power of the horse. Don't go near. Don't go in the stalls. Keep your distance. Right? In Old Testament times, the believers were taught... The first thing we have to know about God is he is a holy and fearsome God. Be careful to respect him, honor him as a holy God. You're a sinner and he is pure and he is powerful. Once you grow up and you become mature, and that would be the equivalent to our New Testament worship today, then what happens? You're a little bit older. Someone who's experienced around a horse will take you and say, here's how you feed the horse. Here's how you touch the horse. Here's where you go around a horse. Here's how you saddle the horse. And now you can be like Matty Ross. You can get up on the back of the horse and it will carry you forward and it becomes your friend. Right? That's New Testament worship. And, and the picture that we're going to get of this is in, in form of the way it used to be for these Hebrew Christians in Old Testament times when they engaged in temple worship. And understand that temple worship was completely segregated because the message was, we have a holy God. Be careful how close you get to this guy. It's even in the book of Hebrews, it says it's, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If you had been a, a Gentile believer in Old Testament times, do you realize that you were not even allowed in the building, the temple? You, you were told you, you can come in off the parking lot. And, and you can join worship, but you have to stay out on the patio. And by the way, this was enforced so strictly that they put a fence up on the patio around this big courtyard, around the temple, this gorgeous building. And on that fence, there were signs that said, if you're a Gentile, even if you believe in and worship the true God that's worshiped in this temple... Jehovah, you worship him. If you go past this sign as a Gentile believer, we will kill you. That's what it said. There was a sign. If you were a Jewish woman, devout believer, follower of God, well, you got to go inside the outer wall 
into a little courtyard there that was called the, the courtyard of the women. But once again, you didn't dare go into the next courtyard. Still outside. You're not in the temple building. You're still out on the patio. Inside that courtyard was where the altar of sacrifice was. And Jewish men were allowed to go into that courtyard, but only on the outsides. All the Jewish men, devout believers, had to congregate around the outside. They were not allowed near the altar or the place where the the animal sacrifices, the goats and bulls, were, were killed. They had to stand back. Only the priests were allowed in here. Now we get to the actual building. So now you can go into the building, but who alone can go into the building? Only a priest. And the priest can only go into the building after he goes through this elaborate ritual. You you may wonder, what's all this talk about sprinkling with water? The priest had to go into a special ceremonial bath. They had to be sprinkled with the blood of, of goats and bulls. They had to put on special priestly garments. And then for one week a year, because they all rotated through this, for one week a year, if you were a priest, you could go into the holy place, not the most holy place. Only one person could ever go into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. That was the high priest. And only once a year on Yom Kippur, the great day of atonement, after he went through that whole thing. This is where these Jewish, now Christians, were coming from in terms of their thought process of approaching God. Now listen to what this author says to them. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that's the curtain that separated the holy of holies from the holy place, that is his body. He's saying, why would you make a U-turn? And go back. Don't you realize how much superior? This is a new way and it's a living way. It's active every day. You are always close to God. You are a priest. Back in the old days with temple worship, you were kept out. You were taught respect God's holiness. Now you're taught that Jesus has died for your sins. He's bled for you. You don't need to be sprinkled by the blood of goats and bulls because you're sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. You don't need to wash in a ceremonial bath because you've been washed by the waters of baptism. This is so much more amazing. You actually have the Holy of Holies with you wherever you are because God is with you all the time as your friend. He is that bigger, more powerful thing that will always daily carry you forward. And don't we need to hear that message? For the times when those doubts and fears begin to creep into our minds, when the, when the voices of the outside world say, why are you being so stupid as to follow Jesus Christ? Why don't you, why don't you do something a lot smarter? Help yourself. You see, and that, that's going to tempt you. Help myself. That sounds, yeah. I'm the only one that cares about me. I better help myself. That's an old and cruddy way. And we have the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. And because of him, we can draw near confidently because he shed his blood 
and given his life, the life of his body, as a perfect sacrifice for our sins, we can draw near confidently because of the body and blood of Christ. Second, we have a great priest over the house of God. Jesus Christ is our constant mediator. Did you see the verse earlier on during the song where it says Jesus Christ lives to intercede for us? That's what he lives to do. He died for you, but here's here's the better thing. He rose from the grave for you too, and he lives to daily walk with you. The beauty of that is that when you sin, which you do daily, and so do I, the temptation is to back away from God. Oh, I realize I did something really, really wrong there. Let's say you went out last night and you did some really foolish, dumb things this Saturday night. Now Sunday morning rolls along. What's the temptation? You feel guilty and ashamed over your behavior on Saturday night. Maybe that behavior came on the way to church this morning as you were yelling at the kids and they were yelling at you. And you're like, dude, we're not going to church. This is horrible. And your guilt and your shame causes you to say, I'm giving God a stiff arm. That's why he says this. You have a priest. He's constantly arguing on your behalf in front of God. Come, get close to God. Be confident around him. We can draw near continuously because we have the perfect mediator. And here's the final point. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Underline those words. With the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled. We're like those priests. But not with the blood of of bulls and goats, but with the blood of Christ. We've had our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Our conscience is no longer guilty. And having our bodies washed with pure water, not that mikvah bath that the priest went into in Jerusalem, but the pure water of the waters of baptism who washed us clean from our sins. We no longer have to worry about a guilty conscience ever again, ever, ever again. Is that not amazing? That's what Jesus did for you. Why would we ever think of making a U-turn away from that? Why would we ever think that this mission that we're on, which, by the way, is not a mission of vengeance like Maddie Ross's mission. Ours is a mission of mercy. To bring Jesus Christ to the baiters of this world. To receive Jesus Christ into our own hearts through faith. Because we too are baiters in our hearts. We're on a mission. To receive. And because we've received so much. To give on to others. That's why this series is called We Give. What does the Bible say? When you've been given much. There's a joyful and awesome responsibility. To give back. To pay it forward. And we give because we have a bigger, more powerful thing that we can hold on to. That bigger, more powerful thing called the author of life, God, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, who stretched out his arms on the cross for us. He is yours and you are his. You might ask yourself, does does it still work to do that? I mean, really? You know, Jeff... 
Does it still work for an individual to just keep on, no U-turns, following Jesus? Is he really there? Should, should I really keep on holding unswervingly to this hope that I have? Is that same Jesus Christ faithful to his promises the way it says in Hebrews eleven twenty three? I want to close out today's message by doing something that I, I was just amazed when I did this exercise. I, I started it a couple months ago for the leaders of our church. And they encouraged me to share this with you. Because last year we, we determined as a church, amongst our leadership, we were going to grab hold of God more tightly than ever. Right? We're going to be Matty Ross. We're going to stop putting confidence in ourselves and our plans and our ideas. We're just going to get with that much bigger, greater, and more powerful thing named God than we are and hold on tight because he will carry us forward, right? Let me show you what God did in 2012 in this church. Most of you don't know these things. So I think you're going to find this interesting. 14 amazing blessings. And I'm not saying this to brag about this church. We are far from a perfect church. We have a long way to go. We're a bunch of sinners just clustering together like grapes. Understand that. I'm here to brag about God. What this bigger, more powerful Savior called Jesus is doing as he works through the people of this church. Now listen to these things. In 2012, more unchurched first-time guests attended Crosswalk than ever before. We exceeded 500 unchurched guests in 2012. When we started Crosswalk eight years ago, our mantra was, we will be a church for unchurched people. Realize 500 unchurched guests is equivalent to about a Sunday attendance over the course of a year, a a whole congregation of people who had never heard about Jesus before came and heard about Jesus. That's amazing. Drawn by God. Number two, in our church last year, 30 people were baptized. 48 new adults became members of our church. I think there's actually more, but I can't get them to turn in their, their, uh, their 101 and 201 vows. I'm after you people. 48 new adults became members, and 28 new people became communicant members. 30 additional people went on to complete 301, 401, and 501 classes. The fall semester of growth groups set a new record for individual signups. We had 197 people, individual people, distinct people, sign up for growth groups in the fall. The last five weeks of year-over-year attendance growth, I went over and looked over our last report. This is comparing uh, the first week of December 2012 with the first week of December 2011, a year ago. Our attendance this year, on December 2nd, was 23% higher than a year ago. On 12-9, was 10% higher than a year ago. On December 16th, was 29% higher than a year ago. On December 23rd, was 42% higher than a year ago. And last Sunday, the last week in December, our attendance was 36% higher than a year ago. Do you see God's Holy Spirit doing something here? Crosswalk Kids is averaging more than 110 children per week learning about Jesus. If you go back eight years to 2004 when Crosswalk was born... We didn't. We had half that, like in the total number of people worshiping. We were worshiping over at the gym at ALA, and we thought it was a good Sunday when 60 people showed up in the whole group. 
Now we have 110 children. Now put on top of that, we have 50 plus teenagers. And we started these ministries really seriously only about a year ago. 50 plus teenagers every month, individual teenagers, are being taught about Jesus and ignite and radiate. That's incredible. Trunk or Treat had almost 1,500 people in attendance. That's two years running. Christmas rocked and Eve, and we had no money this year to do any promotion. We could not send out postcards. You know how we did it because we just got done with it. We gave you the postcards and said, will you put some postage on this baby and send it to a friend? We still had slightly more people attend Christmas Rock and Eve this year than we did last year when we had a lot more. We put a lot more effort into putting it out there and inviting people in. Amazing what God is doing. Our worship team produced its first original CD. Beautiful. And those of you who've heard it, you know they did a great job with that. There are copies of it on the patio. Go grab one. Pay for it. Jonathan wants more money so he can get uh, stuff up front here. God's been extremely generous to us financially. This is amazing to me. You may or may not know we are completely a member-supported church, meaning God supports us through our own members. And our members' response of thanksgiving has been amazing. Last spring, we implemented this first fruits giving thing that I just told you about when Jenna was up here, that we're going to take the first 10% and it's going out the door before we spend anything on ourselves. It goes out the door first, first fruits giving. Since then, our general fund offerings amongst our family members have risen 25%. God's generous heart has made your hearts more generous. In addition to this, now this is on top, in the last three months, October, December 2012, we laid out a goal in our Moving Mountains campaign of $100,000, and we've already raised 25% of that. That's $25,000 additional dollars given on top of the 25%. It doesn't stop there. We also received, on top of that, major gifts of $100,000 to do special projects like have a volunteer coordinator, buy computers and some other equipment that we needed from our own members who just freely out of their hearts generously gave special over and above gifts of $100,000 on top of their moving mountains and their regular offering. And then finally, for the past three years running, we've averaged giving away more than $20,000 a year through our Love One Another offering and our Compassions Fund to hurting people in our church family and beyond our church family in this community. What a generous God and what a generous people in this church. It's amazing. Last couple of things. We implemented behind-the-scenes structural changes. We, we divided our entire congregation into seven communities, changed how we do volunteer teams. Uh, it's resulted in improved care Still needs some improvement. We're still working on it for our congregation members and better involvement by our members. We implemented improved planning tools for every area of ministry across the board here at Crosswalk. We achieved a long-time goal of being admitted into the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod. That was a six-year process. God granted us to be a member of the Wells this last year. And here's the best one, number 14. I saved the best for last. We issued a call for a second pastor, a discipleship pastor here at Crosswalk, and it was accepted by Pastor Dan Salofra and, and his wife, Tanya, and his kids, Nate, Caleb, 
Jared, Caitlin, and Greta are sitting here in your midst. Don't look around. Don't embarrass them. They're right here with us today, right? And they're, they're getting ready. On January 20th, he's going to be moved into his office as a pastor. They're getting settled. What an amazing set of blessings God is giving us. See what happens to a church that says, let's grab hold tight to the words and promises of our Savior Jesus Christ. I want you to know, when you do that, collectively as a church, when you do that individually, grab hold tight the words and promises of God. You are grabbing hold of something bigger and stronger than yourself. You're grabbing hold of his forgiveness and his love and his power. You're grabbing hold of eternal life. Don't let go. And don't ever agree to make a U-turn. Keep moving forward. And that's my pledge to you as we head into 2013. Crosswalk Church is going to grab on even tighter to this God who is bigger and stronger than us. And we are going to keep moving forward to spread the gospel into this entire city called Phoenix, Arizona. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, man, we, we are so blessed, God, to have been called into your family, to be called your dearly loved children. And, and we regret all the times when the doubts and the fears creep into our mind and we begin to ask ourselves, should we keep moving forward with Jesus? Lord, we repent of that right now and we ask you, give us the courage to see you as always being faithful to your promises and to grab hold tight of you and your promises and never let go. And give us through the power of your spirit, the determination, the little Maddie Ross determination who was not confident in, our, in herself. She was confident in you and in what you had given her. And she moved forward on her mission. Lord, help us to do the same thing as a church. Trusting in Jesus and his promises. Trusting in, in the cleansing and the washing of your blood shed on the cross for us. Trusting in the life of your resurrection, the power of your resurrection. Help us to not live in fear or doubt, but to keep moving forward on our mission. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You give me joy more than my share. at crosswalkphoenix.com.